Welcome to today's special edition of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman. At the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we were all trying to figure out what was going on. In part to make sense of it myself, I released a separate podcast called Distanced to have conversations with several people from around the world about their initial experiences during life in lockdown. Those conversations ranged from a great discussion with a Stanford doctor about his initial expectations for the virus to a technology executive from Shanghai about how China dealt with the social and economic situations that face them. I'm releasing those episodes as part of the main podcast today, and Yasha and I will be making our glorious return to podcasting soon. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy these discussions because they show how far we've come, yet how far we still have to go. Welcome to Distanced, a podcast about people around the world who are dealing with life in quarantine during the age of the coronavirus. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm recording from my home in San Mateo, California. Thank you for joining today's episode of Distanced. Um, one thing that I have been thinking just a ton about, like you know, a lot of other casual observers, is you know the uh, the notion of the government response to the virus, and could have anything been done differently to to make things less severe than they are today. And um, I wanted to talk to someone who has pretty extensive experience with the federal government to give you know their insight into what's going on. And I had the pleasure of speaking to Ryan Panchatsaram today, who under the Obama administration was uh, deputy chief technology officer. And so uh, he has a pretty unique vantage point and some strong opinions about what's going on in the world right now and how uh, the government could improve its response over time. And, you know, he's not interested in spending time on what we could have done differently. He's very much focused on the task at, uh, task at hand and, uh, is, you know, putting himself out there and, and helping however he can. Um, you'll really enjoy this episode if you want to get some, some insight into what, what the government might be thinking right now and how, how things might trend over time. Please enjoy today's episode and thanks for supporting the podcast. So I'm here today talking to Ryan Panchatsaram, who, disclosure, I have known for a long time. Uh, a lot of my early guests are, are friends of mine. So thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. And it's a funny story how we know each other. And so in this era of, of being so, so distanced as this name of the podcast is, um, it, our parents met oh, through the telephone book, if I, if I recall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it was, I, th I think the story goes something like in the, uh, in the eighties, um, we, you know, parents were just looking up other Indian parent, other immigrant parents, uh, by the last name, just to see if there was something, you know, <laughs> a familiar sounding name. And that, that is literally how our parents met. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, I think my dad was looking for, uh, just my, my mom was, uh, coming to join him and they were living in, in Sunnyvale and 
in the Bay Area, and uh, I think he was looking for someone to have dinner with and to welcome her. And both of your parents, you know, dad flipped open the yellow pages, found the Raja Raman, uh, gave the phone number a call, and from how they tell the story, uh, it was friendship ever since. And uh, as my parents lived and moved around the world from San Francisco to Alaska to the Philippines to Germany to Italy and back to the States, your family and you too, you and your sister came to visit along the way. And so I think folks, when, when we introduce each other, we always call ourselves cousins. And it's true because we've grown up together. Um, and so it's a fun story. Uh, it, it's so funny. And as I think about it, the disclosure here, of course, is, you know, we've been through a lot of life events together. You were the MC at my wedding. Um, I was the MC at yours. And here we are. We would not be able to grab a coffee together if we wanted to. I mean, unless we are, you know, going to break the social distance thing, which we're not going to do, right? No, we're not going to do. And plus, you know, even if we try to do it at six feet, I think the uh, the current record is something in the, the 20 to 30 feet of, of, of droplet range. So, no, no, we're not. We are, we're sheltered in place. And, um, you know, my family, we're, we're sheltered up in San Francisco in the dog patch neighborhood. And you are down a little bit, a little more south, right in the middle. I'm in San Mateo. And, you know, aside from just the, the, the friend angle on this, the reason why I wanted to have you as one of my first guests is, I mean, of course, you've had a very, very interesting career, but you have a unique perspective on the problem that we're facing right now. And I, I was hoping you could just spend a minute on, you know, quick overview of like what you've worked on and, yeah. of course, highlighting some of the work you did for the Obama White House. Yeah, I mean, for, for this moment in time, you know, our, our country is in crisis, but our, our government is in a bigger crisis, I, I would say. And, and so, you know, my background is I spent uh, four years in D.C. I worked at the White House. I was the uh, deputy chief technology officer um, for the United States, working on a lot of issues relating to how tech can make government work better. But um, for a good chunk of time, I was part of this rescue team that helped turn around healthcare.gov uh, to take a failing website that couldn't enroll anybody into um, affordable health care into one that ended up enrolling over 7 million people at the course of, you know, the end of our little rescue effort. And, and after that, I think there was this realization and understanding in that moment that technology has a role to play in how we deliver services to the American people, in this case, getting them health care. And so I stayed on after that rescue effort for a good, uh, I think, almost two years after that helping in any way that I could to um, try to bring maybe, you know, the communities that this podcast reaches, which are, you know, we call ourselves techies, but how do you get techies into government? How do you give them opportunities and ways to serve, you know, a lot of other um, professions like lawyers and, and doctors have, you know, this kind of understanding in their careers that they, they should work at the VA, they should do a clerkship, they, you know, you have these ways of going in and out of the public and private sectors. But for technologists, there really wasn't a way. And so, you know, we started this uh, group based out of the White House called the United States Digital Service, USDS, that recruited folks to really deploy themselves in, in the way that we did on the healthcare.gov rescue. And it's one of those things that's existed past the Obama administration into the Trump administration with uh, a great leader named Matt Cutts, who leads that team. And they work and do 
fantastic things with the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Veterans Affairs. And so that's where I was four years ago. But more recently, I spend my time at um, a venture fund called Kleiner Perkins, working for the chairman there. And we, you know, do our best to, to spend time with companies that are trying to make a difference in the world. And uh, now we're, we're kind of at, at this moment. And so I might pause there because I think that's a, this, is a, this is a bigger topic, the moment we're in right now. Yeah. And I have a bunch of, a bunch of questions for you. And so I'll, I'll try to I'll try to keep it as as concise as as possible because we both have uh, young kids that we're dealing with and we're recording this, uh, and theoretically when it's bedtime, my kids are unfortunately watching <laughs> another movie today. But where to begin? So, you know, for the casual observer of the news that's going on right now, um, this just looks like a catastrophic failure in the United States on multiple levels, and so. Um, I, look, I'm just a I'm just a news watcher, and so I'm hoping that you could provide a layer of depth that's a little bit better. But everybody in the media seems to be talking about this notion of testing, and mm-hmm. it seems like it would be a simple problem for the richest country in the world to solve. What what's going on? Can you just explain it to the layperson, and maybe you can provide a little bit more insight? Yeah, I mean, of course, I think we're all seeing this sorry, we've all seen this unfold together, right? I think we're all learning about terms and terminologies that we never thought we'd have to, like, what are, what are PCR tests? What are reagents? You know, we, we were being educated on how tests are being done together because this crisis is always just front and center for each of us. But your question was, why are we in this moment? And maybe I should describe this moment. Like today, which is April 1st, in the United States, we do perhaps maybe 100,000 tests a day. You rewind back just a month, you know, I think we were doing a couple of hundred tests a day. And so we should acknowledge that the leap from a couple of hundred to 100,000 is really, you know, it is a testament to a lot of uh, folks and companies and organizations and labs really rallying around this, you know, cry of we need to be able to test so we can see where the problem is, but we should really honestly be doing far more than 100,000 tests a day. And you rewind back to just those couple of hundred a day, um, we should have been doing 100,000 tests then. And, you know, there are great pieces online by, you know, the team at the Atlantic and the Washington Post that really dissect this problem. But it, but it really all started out in the beginning, you know, where when we in the United States realized that the coronavirus was something that was spreading and that there was a chance of it coming to the state, we had a choice, our CDC had a choice, to use the tests that the World Health Organization had created or to create their own. And there was a decision made in that moment to create our own that possibly wouldn't have set us back if there weren't two the three other critical mistakes along the way from sending out faulty kits. I want to I want to pause I want to pause you there because the, yeah. the there's there's a lot of material in here that could be pretty interesting which is which is just to say why would why would a country like what are the upsides I'm just trying to grant every possible benefit you know to the decision making what is the upside of having our own test as opposed to using somebody else's like what would be the calculus behind making a decision like that from my point of view, I mean, you know, there are, there are folks that are deep, more deeply, 
invested in career paths that can answer that question better. But from my understanding, it's to really control the chain, right? To understand and say that this test is the certified test by us. And it's this idea that we do things the best or the greatest here. And, you know, you package all these things together, you know, the CDC should have been able to create a test in the image of what the World Health Organization had created. Um, but we were starting too late, you know, you know, let, you know, what would have been nice would have been that test had been perhaps created back in December so they could go through the hiccups and for it to have been the kinks to be worked out in January. So we wouldn't be where we are today, but there was an emphasis to build our own, make our own and not use the one that the World Health Organization had created. And it's like a probably a problem of both not just process, but people and leadership. I mean, if you want to unpack what happened back then, it's a people process and procurement problem all in one, right? I mean, you have a federal government that is lacking key leaders in very important roles across it. It's not you know, I'm not saying anything political when I say that. That's just the fact. Well, right? well and, and, that's, at, and I'm definitely not interested in making, you know, political statements. There's plenty of podcasts no, and, and, yeah. and others that do that. You know, and what I'm what I am interested in is what you have that, you know, most guests would not have. And maybe, maybe you're one of the you know handful of people in the world that understands both the tech side of it and the uh, government side of it. And so I hear the CDC, I hear the FDA thrown around a lot, but. What, yeah. Who were the players? Like, like, can you explain, you know, just what the government function is supposed to be during a crisis like this and which organizations are supposed to be involved? Because that is extremely confusing for someone like me, FDA, CDC, who else? Like what, you know, who's, who are the players? Yeah. Uh, I mean, in this kind of response, the, the, the players are the agencies responsible for different parts of the puzzle. Right. I mean, they're in their names, right? There's the uh, Centers for Disease Control, which monitor and watch and track and surveil and, and truly help us see what we can't see and to get ahead of it. You know, our FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, is there to help ensure that we have the right drugs and therapies and vaccines and diagnostics that can test for those things. You have new agencies that were formed maybe a decade ago, like BARDA, which um, I'm going to butcher the acronym, but it's basically the biodefense agency that has the ability, I think they get about a billion dollars a year from the government to invest in new tests and diagnostics and flus ahead of time as well. And so from a roles and responsibility point of view, you know, we, we have the right parts and pieces, right? And you know, there's this charter to have a stockpile. There's a supposed to be leadership in, you know, the National Security Council that's really responsible for these things. But even if that's not there, that leadership still exists within the agencies. And so, so, Christ, so and, and, yeah, gig over it. And, and sorry, sorry to interrupt there. Just one, you know, one question that I'm like really fascinated by is, is there somebody in government, you know, that would be the first person to know like, oh my gosh, there is something happening in Wuhan, China or, you know, Mumbai or wherever in the world that could potentially pose a threat to us, you know, in three weeks time. Is there, is there, an, is there a person or is that an organization or like, how does that even work? For, for things that 
you know, threaten our national security. There, there are, of course, I mean, there's not just one agency that's, that's walking, you know, watching and, and, and really keep an eye on these things, right? It's not just our CDC, but it's also the intelligence communities. I mean, with, for all the things that were happening in Wuhan, right? You got to remember, this is happening at the end of December. It wasn't something that was secret, you know, like this is something that was very public and on display and the world was watching. We were watching and we should have been far more prepared. But I think a part of where, you know, this conversation is going to go, right? You can look to the past and find blame, but really everything we all need to be doing right now is just focusing on the challenge at hand and how do we get out of it? Because to me, honestly, like the blame piece, like all the unpacking of what went wrong, we're going to find out those things and those energies are going to be far better well spent later on because right now it's going to take an all hands effort just to get the testing we need in place to get the proper PPEs to get our healthcare workers, the right staffing and safety kind of conditions for them to work. Like there's just all these other things. And so, but, but your question is right. What went wrong? And, Unfortunately, for things like this, it's like a number of small decisions compound and really can cause, I guess you could say, catastrophic results, right? It wasn't just the test that wasn't built, uh, sorry, created the kits that, you know, failed and et cetera, et cetera. It's that we had guidelines that were really specific to just one part of the world. When the outbreak was happening in Italy, people were coming through into the United States and they would say, Hey, I'm not feeling well, but I, I didn't go to Wuhan, but I did go to Italy and we'd let them, you know, come, come right on in and other countries do a better job of that, you know, sort of check had borders on health and wellness and, you know, temperature scans and these questions, you know, there's going to be a moment to unpack what happened from a public health point of view soon. Right. The, the, the guidance that the CDC gave on who gets tested, the guidance the CDC gave on who should wear masks and who shouldn't, right? There's like a really big movement happening right now. And I think a lot of the credit does go to a lot of folks within our communities for just rallying people around masks for all, right? How, no, don't touch the, the medical grade ones, but like take a cloth, you know, shirts, cut it up, make one yourself. But this idea that if we want to stop this spread, there are things that we have to do. And you look around the world, there are, you know, three countries that show that they could do it. You know, I think the case examples of like Singapore and South Korea, they do these things, right? They check, they do checks at critical entry points. They do temperature checks in crowded areas. Everyone has this understanding of you wear a mask because not for yourself, but for others. So you don't spread Things. And I think we here in the U.S. are going to get caught up very quickly on that. That is the new norm. Yeah, um, and I'm so. It, and I, yeah. I want to dig. I want to dig into the mass thing a little bit more. Uh, a little bit later. I have a. I have a couple of other questions though. As we bring this yeah, up, because, because we've talked about other countries, and and all of this is just we're armchair speculating. But one thing I do often think about is what really is the best possible outcome of something like this, right? So let's just say everybody was on top of everything and there was this thing happening in China and clearly like, you know, there was some element of, and I, I, again, I only know what I read in news articles, but it does appear as if the the outbreak was kind of not, you know, like there wasn't good public information about it, perhaps provided by the Chinese government. 
about the severity and I don't, um, you know, and I don't know if that news you know, was suppressed for a while or whether it was really November or whatever, but you know, let's just say everything worked out perfectly. Do you see zero cases in the U S like what, what is the best possible outcome in, in the case of something like this? I think you, you have to expect that you will see some cases in the U.S., but the idea is that if they come through, you know, come stateside, right, enter at a port, whether it be land, air, sea, um, you have to be able to detect, you have to be able to ask those individuals to self-quarantine, you have to be able to do proper contact tracing, and so there was always probably this expectation it would be here, but when it gets here that we would have enough infrastructure to test appropriately and wider than just what screening questions could do. The ability to have uh, the proper instructions to how to self-quarantine and kind of keep yourself from spreading it too far and wide. I mean, there are ways to keep this from spreading catastrophically like the way it has now um, in those early stages. Um, Yeah, that that makes sense to me. are we, I mean, in your opinion, just your personal opinion and what you observe, are we doing better than Europe, worse than Europe? Like, what's the, what's your take on that? I mean, every country is doing so differently, but we are absolutely for sure on the, the, the end of the spectrum where it's on the, the terrible side. Because <laughs> uh, we started off terribly, Sunil. Like, that's the challenge with this, right? It's, this is an exponential problem. It's that if you do the painful, hard things soon and earlier, you are far likely to have suppressed and, you know, the, the, the pain you feel is, is far less. And because we waited so long and because there are still parts of the country that don't have, you know, stay at home orders and haven't, you know, closed down non-essential businesses, it's still spreading. Right. And so we're not doing a good job of it. Um, do you and think that, I mean, you know, part of the reason is, I mean, you know, you, you cited Singapore, you cited, you know, a couple of other places, South Korea, of course, I've read some of the pretty innovative things that they're doing there. Is it just because they went through the SARS experience that they were like, whoa, this was a dry run. We know we've got this. Do you think that there's some element of that or is it just, you know, or, or is it that their governments are able to move faster or some combination of the two? It's, it's, it's layers, right? It's, it's uh, you know, um, in South Korea's example, like, you know, serendipitously back in December, they actually ran an exercise of if a pandemic happened, what will we do, right? So they were primed, right? They were practicing for this like it was a nuclear drill. I, I had no um, idea. But, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear about that. And and so for them, they, they, were, they were ready, right? Like they, they, they're running these drills, but, but you, you add on a whole bunch of other things like, an example in Singapore, if you, um, and in a, a lot of other countries as well too, you know, if you, you if you're sick and, and you stay home, right, having paid sick leave means you will stay home, right? And so when you're asked to self quarantine, when you're asked to take yourself out of your job, you can't, you know, and <laughs> like there are so many different ways to stop the spread of these things, and I think we here in the U.S. just had a had a whole world of things that I think we took for, or not took for granted, but I think like this crisis is showing us that our safety net has so many holes in it. Right. You know, you, and, and, you know, very, and so I'm, I'm yeah. curious and yeah, it, 
uh, we're and I want to talk about that because you know right economic impact is is a big is a big subject. I mean, if we were, I mean, we can talk about it now too. But it, well, if we were prepared, I mean, the 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 economic yeah. ramifications of this. I mean, I can't even begin to like the second and third order effects. Holy, oh my gosh! Like this is this is unbelievable. This is. I mean, it's, it's catastrophic for families. It's devastating to say, like, it is on every level. But you know, going back to your original question, like, what foundational things have these other countries had that we didn't, right? It was, like, practice and preparedness. It was a testing infrastructure that existed and was able to be deployed really quickly. The crazy part is we do have that same infrastructure here. We just weren't able to get it kicked up and started as fast as we expected. But it's also, you know, from that safety net kind of thing and the countries that have been able to really do this well, like having paid leave was a really important part of it, right? When we talked about earlier, how do you, you know, you can't expect to not have it spread, but if it does spread, how do you make sure it doesn't? Remember that piece of like self-quarantining saying to a person, you can't go to work for 14 days. They have to, and it's a voluntary thing, right? Like they have to follow it. And it's the, you know, when, 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 you, when you look at the, the kinds of angst and pain across the country of, of what it means to bring home a paycheck, you know, you, you, you choose between this thing that says, maybe I'm sick, I don't feel any symptoms, right? And, what do, and not what, getting you know, a paycheck. What's your take on, and this is, this is really actually the thing, I mean, the, I mean, the things that I worry about this with this, so the length is, is pretty long and just like every other, every other person in the country, but the thing that worries me the most is the state by state response. And so, and what the implications of that are. And so we, we talked a lot about federal government and I'm hoping you can just spend yeah. a minute talking about, you know, you know, the, the, like the state government response has been so different and what the long-term implications are of that. What is this? What does that mean? And maybe you can talk about states you think are, are doing a pretty good job. Of course. I mean, I think the, what gives me hope, like it gives you worry, but it gives me hope that the state and local government response, right? Because states and local governments, they can act maybe in many ways faster and set examples and be leaders, right? I mean, folks are going to look back at this time and look at what Mayor London Breed did to say, hey, we're, we're going to shut this city down. And knock on wood, these next weeks, play out the way that a shelter in place is supposed to work with controlling this crisis and, you know, reducing that or not. And you'll look to that as an example. You'll look to California as an example. You'll, you'll start to see, and we're going to also have to need to kind of learn from each other as well too, because we've never been in a situation like this, right? So we have to learn from other states and how they're, you know, expanding access to certain waivers. And, and it's just like, how do we each teach each other the playbook? And, you know, in kind of the circles of folks that, uh, spending time with right now, it's like, how do we accelerate the kinds of actions that need to happen across our country? And that's perhaps the most inspiring part about this crisis is that you have an all out effort from so many parts and industries and trying to figure out ways to help, right? You see this incredible rally around how do we get our health workers protective equipment, right? Every kind of business is trying to figure out a way to make masks make gowns, make shields, and it's, it's truly inspiring, right? And, you know, you have this group of, uh, I think it's, it's almost impossible to sit idle. Everyone is trying to find a way to help. And, and from our community here, uh, an effort got started 
to help channel tech volunteers to uh, to state and local governments. And, and the effort is called USDR, the U.S. Digital Response, because what folks like three of sorry, two of my other colleagues, uh, Jen Polka and Corey Zarek and myself were hearing is that you had states and local governments that just needed help with ways on moving data or building a small website to keep people up to date in their communities or to create a website to help seniors get matched with delivery services because, you know, they don't and shouldn't be leaving their homes. And so this volunteer response has been, I mean, to me, inspiring. But but I think for everyone that's working on it, it's like we're all trying to find a way to help. So let's let's talk about, um, you know, I guess, you know, to the extent that you're, you're able to, to share some of this, I mean, I'm sure you keep in touch with some of your old colleagues. Um, what, what are their takes on, Hey, this is something that we could have done different or like, this is the thing that would have moved the lever the most like you. And we're going back to the mass thing. We're talking about mass. We're talking about, you know, creating our own testing kit, et cetera. Is there one thing that you and your colleagues are like, okay, this was the thing that we should have got, you know, done a better job of. And in our opinion, that this would have moved the needle the most. You know, in, in the conversations that we're all having, I think we're, we're all looking for what's the next right thing that we can do, right? Like what's the ways that we can help, you know, our states, but also the federal government as well, right? I think we all have colleagues and past colleagues that are still there and, um, we're trying to channel our energies that way, but to truly answer your question of, well, what should and could have we gotten right? It'll always come back down to testing. Uh, that will be the first big and perhaps the main domino they set this thing in the worst track ever. And so I think for us, as we think about what we have to do, because by the way, the testing problem is still here. How do we increase testing capacity? How do we get more than just 100,000 tests to happen a day? Because we've sort of hit this plateau. If you go to covidtracking.com, um, I'm one of the volunteers on this on this project, which goes to all I had no idea. I, bet, I checked that state. site, yeah. And uh, started by, it was started by Alexis Madrigal, who's at The Atlantic, and Jeff Hammerbacher, who uh, helped found Cloudera. These two folks on Twitter were doing it themselves. They joined forces. They're looking for volunteers. I raised my hand and it, it, it <laughs> the team scrapes and crawls all 50 websites, validates what the states are saying on test cases. And the reason why they started it was because the CDC wasn't sharing this information on a real time basis. And so this group of volunteers has stepped up to do it. And, you know, if you ask anyone on the effort, I think we all thought, may, hey, after this first week or two, we won't have to do this because, you know, the CDC would publish this information or the states would. And uh, it, it didn't happen. And so we're still here. But the things that you can learn from what's happening right now is this increase up to this plateau of 100,000. We, we were doing pretty good every couple of days, doubling, 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 doubling the total amount of tests that have been done. And this plateau is a little scary because it means that we've hit another set of bottlenecks, right? You rewind back a couple of weeks, we had bottlenecks around reagents, bottlenecks around swabs. And so there's something happening again here that you and I and all of us will, will feel and hear pretty soon. And it's likely bottlenecks at some of the large central labs. Um, I have hope, though, this number is and should go up a bit more because you've got companies like Abbott, uh, who make a diagnostic called ID Now and BioFire and 
Cepheid who have these point of care diagnostic tests, right? These are like machines that are not in labs, but they're in kind of like the ERs where you can drop a cartridge in, put a sample, and then within, you know, an hour, find out if a person's positive or, or, or not. And that's going to change the game because right now, most of these tests get sent off and it takes a day or two turnaround. When you can switch it to being hours, it becomes more, you know, practical in the intervention. And so when those tests go online, this 100,000 number should pop up significantly. Um, the number that I think is supposedly sort of the North Star of number of tests that we need to get to every day was shared by um, Scott Gottlieb, who was the former head of, a, yeah, the FDA said it's 750,000 a day. So we got a long way to go. But if we get to that number, we'll have the capacity we need in the U.S. to really test properly. Um, so so I, 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 have, I have three more questions for you uh, before I let mm-hmm. you go. And we go back to our, our respective, you know, kids, mine who are still watching a movie, I think. Um, one is, you know, on the subject of testing, do you mm-hmm. trust the numbers out of, out of China? Like in your opinion, you know, just as a data enthusiast, like, do you think that those are accurate numbers and, you know, anything that you can share on that as to why or why not? My, my approach to that question is almost like asking that question of, do you trust the numbers here, right? In the U S or that's a good point. That's a good point. Right. And so let's pick apart California just for a sec, uh, because this is our home, right? The, the sad thing is the only number you can trust is unfortunately the number of people that have passed away because of COVID. And that's because that number is really tracked incredibly um, uh, uh, well in the system, right? But the number of people that have COVID, we don't know yet, right? We're not testing enough to know how many people and who have it. The number of cases in California is is one number, right? The number of positives, I think it's uh, a couple of thousand, right? But you have... 50 to 60,000 tests pending. So I, I checked this the, number obsessively and I, I checked the daily tracker. In fact, I might've checked your site a few hours ago and it is going up. So the, the case of the missing tests, I think we're at close to, so I think we're at like 6,000 or 7,000 as we record this. Don't quote me on that. Uh, I did not fact check that. Or we're at several thousand cases in California now, a couple thousand in LA County. Well, uh, let me quickly actually let me, let me just pull it out because that, that that feels like the right thing to do because it's easy and click at the data. There you go. <laughs> I can go to California, and so the numbers in California are eight thousand positive, twenty one thousand negative, but fifty seven thousand pending tests. Right? If you have, oh, wow. if we have fifty seven thousand pending tests, you just use the current you know kind of ratio of eight thousand positive, twenty one thousand negative. You've got to think that means that there's eight thousand positives that haven't been registered in the system, right? Like our case rate here in the U.S., sorry, in California is likely double that where we are now. And so this is just comes down to being an information and, and monitoring problem, right? Like my, my old colleague on the healthcare.gov rescue, Paul Smith, um, we were catching up this past week and it's, it's, it comes down to, on healthcare.gov, we were missing monitoring and here we're missing monitoring as well too. Um, we can, I, can I ask a really stupid question about testing? Um, 
Yeah. And, and this might be incredibly dumb, but what if you're, okay, how would your public health response actually change? So what I mean by that is you and I are kind of just doing ratios and you know, whatever. I mean, you're, you have a much more informed opinion, but let's just say I'm the governor of California or any state. Oh yeah. Just whatever the number is, I'm going to, I'm going to quadruple it. And I'm going to, I'm going to assume that that's the real number is four X what it is. Um, Mm -hmm. would like, does that, what does the testing actually do in that scenario? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's less about the final number and the fact that you were able to test so much more at the point of like intervening, right? Like the fact that we constrain the number of tests that we do, the fact that we were, uh, screening for tests in ways that were location-based, yet not symptom-based, you're letting people through. You're clearing people of the thing you're trying to stop and fight. And so uh, by having more tests than that final number, it means that you are able to aggressively screen. Like, we need to be able to screen. Like, success is maybe not just thinking about that 750,000 number, but it's also thinking that, hey, if I need to test this person, I can test this person without blinking an eye, right? Like I don't have to put them in an artificial box that I hope means that it's a higher likelihood that they have the coronavirus, right? It's that if someone is expressing symptoms or has a concern that they have it, we should be able to be testing. Not to mention there are other benefits. I mean, just now, as I think about it, I mean, you know, the people who are extremely high risk, if they're, if they're tested, they could, you know, especially if they interact with a lot of people, we can reduce their exposure and thus the spread. Of course. I mean, the, the, we also need uh, an aggressive amount of tests to happen because you're going to also see, which we're seeing now, is tests for frontline workers, right? Like, you need to test them as frequently as you can, as we can functionally can, right? I mean, because you and I, when we have symptoms, maybe we'll have one test at the beginning and then maybe one test at the end, r- rarely, right, to check if it's actually gone or not. But for someone that's in an ER, in a hospital, working day in, day out, having to go home to their families, like, and come back into the hospital and everything in between, you're going to want to test those people more frequently, right? And and we're not today, right? And so it's like, all these things around testing, testing, testing are like, holding us back from being able to do this well. And, and there's going to be another chapter on testing as well, too. And if folks are really interested, go down the other like right now, all the tests that we have are, are PCR based uh, because it's the most specific way to find out if you have the coronavirus or not. But there's also the world of the antibody test, which is not as sensitive, but it's not necessarily meant to say if you have it or don't. It's meant to sort of tell us that you had it, not have it or don't have it, but that you that's the one it, I'm really, right? really interested in because then, you know, those those people can enter the workforce again and. Well, you know, it can almost create in a way, my, my fear of that is in the absence of a vaccine, which hopefully we discover, it creates almost like a two-class system where you've either had it and you're safe to work or you, you haven't had it and you're in some trouble. I, I, I look at that, that two classes in maybe a slightly different way. I mean, right, that's, a, that's an accurate way of looking at it, but it's also the folks that have had it. Um, and if the understanding is correct, I mean, you're not going to get it again for a little bit of time, right? A lot of the stuff that, that was coming out of China that was saying that people who were negative that went positive were, were, were uh, sorry, people that were positive that were tested negative got positive again. 
I think there, there are a few papers that have just come out that are saying that, no, the test that said they were negative wasn't sensitive enough. And so they were always positive to begin with. Um, but um, in the case of the two classes or the two types of people, you have it or you don't. Um, when you recover, you become this person that could probably be massively useful in the front lines in the most essential businesses, right? I mean, that this includes, you know, not just our hospitals, but it's our grocery stores, our banks, and all the things that keep our, you know, <laughs> uh, quote unquote, life as usual moving, right? And it's it's um, not a uh, it's not a bad thing, uh, but the bad thing is if we can't test for it soon and understand, right? I mean, we don't actually know how many people have had it, right? And by being able to do this antibody test and thankfully from like a scale point of view, apparently being able to roll those out should be faster, should be quicker, but I don't believe any tests as at least of recording right now have been approved by the FDA or rolled out. But as soon as they are, you're going to see massive testing happening on this front. Um, so I'm curious to leave you with two more two more questions here. I think I, I asked the one about about testing and public health response, but play out as best you can, just in your personal opinion, the next eight to twelve weeks of American life. Like maybe three predictions that you have. They can be virus related, economic related. I mean, you see a lot of stuff in your in your position and dealing with some of the people that you've dealt with, but. What are three predictions you have for American life over the next three months? Over the next three months, um, I don't, I think there's one thing that we have to all acknowledge is that possibly in three months, we're going to be in a very similar mode that we are in right now. That's scary. And, See, even, even that, um, even saying that is, I know. is scary. And, and if, uh, and it might differ from city to city, state to state, right? Um, cities who, in states and areas that got ahead of it and are able to show that it isn't spreading in the community and you have ample testing and our hospitals haven't been uh, over, over capacity, those cities can start to open up again, right? And so... Uh, that's going to be the second observation that will hopefully happen in three months is that there will be movement again. But the movement's not going to look the same way that we're used to now, right? It's like you're going to want to still distance, right? You're going to want to wear a mask in public. And remember, you wear the mask in public as a citizen, not because, or sorry, as a person uh, and not a healthcare worker because you don't want to spread it, right? Because because this virus is able to... <laughs> when you're asymptomatic we all wear masks just in case we do that cough or if you're a talker uh sometimes like myself who you know you can see like droplets coming out and you're like oh gosh like the mask is supposed to help that and so the second observation is that we will see movement again we won't have large gatherings and things like that in the immediacy but life getting back to normal could 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 sort of start to slowly happen right you can uh go out, you can um, visit probably restaurants and other places, you'll have spacing between tables, you'll wear the mat, you know, it's like life will slowly start to restart again. Um, third observation, I truly hope in three months from now, 
testing isn't an issue anymore from a capacity point of view and that we've checked that box. I sure hope that three months from now that all of this effort from the private sector on getting PPEs and the government's efforts on getting PPEs and that piece of the puzzle, our, our, our frontline workers won't have to worry about that part anymore and they can focus on doing their jobs and doing them well and we'll have enough ventilators and so there won't be choices that have to be made. I mean, you've got to imagine in three months from now, there will be like every convention center should have hospital beds set up and everything right for the capacity that's going to happen. And so the road back to normal is going to take a little bit of time. And, and I really do, you know, there's another, you know, Paul has just these really thoughtful points of view on this and, he tweeted this maybe a couple of weeks back and he was just kind of reminding to shut things down. Yeah, it's hard, right? Uh, but it's also easy, right? Just flip a switch. And, and I think in this sense, he's drawing an analogy to a computer. And uh, But starting it back up can be really hard. And so, so the, yeah, I mean, like that's, it's all scary, um, you know, and in particular, I think about, and this segues nicely into my last question for you as a politics guy. Um, do you think we have an election in November? This is the, yeah. this, this is something yeah. that keeps me up at night. So do you think we have an election? And part B of that question would be, um, is there any world where, and I'm not asking you to speculate on who will win and who won't. I'm more thinking, is there a possibility of like a, a new candidate entering the picture as a result of this crisis on the Democrat side? And so, there's talk of Cuomo, there's talk, of, and I know you're partial because you worked with, with Obama Biden, and I'm just kind of speculating here, but a Bill Gates or something like that, like what, you know, do you think that that's like just a low prob probability situation or like what, so you, you think we definitely have an election? Yeah, we definitely have an election. I mean, there's no way in the world we, well, I mean, I think that statement has <laughs> been uttered before and, and, and things have changed, right? But, uh, in this case here, we are going to have an election and we need to find a way to do it safely. And, you know, whether it means that folks get the ability to mail in their ballots, like there will be a way and we'll do it. And um, I think what we're going to be surprised with is the things that uh, one of the here, maybe the only silver line, because I do want to leave on, on like some optimistic notes, right? Like the three months from now and, and those pieces, I think, like with this election that will happen, you know, mail-in ballots might be the default, right? Um, Which would be good for people who are typically suppressed. Right. And, you know, when I talked about earlier about our safety net having so many holes and, you know, on paper, it looks like it's there. But when you're actually in those circumstances, it's horrendous to be put through that system this crisis is forcing a lot of the different parts and pieces of it to be re not just reanalyzed, but be, but hopefully rewritten and questioned, right? This idea that there is this sort of, you know, universal basic income idea that's, 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 that's getting deployed, this idea of reducing the requirements on SNAP, this, uh, and sorry, these aren't ideas, these are actions that are happening, right? This uh, the, the trend of expanding Medicaid to cover people, right, that was held onto for so long, you know, the, the, the use of the ACA to cover essential health benefits like a COVID test. I mean, it's, it's pushing 
uh, uh, more and more energy towards fixing this safety net that's supposed to catch us in these moments, paid family leave. Like, these are all things that were off the table politically and not off the table, but impossible to fight for. And now they seem to be the obvious thing from both sides on how to fix this because when this happened, the net wasn't there to catch folks. And so, so the optimist in me it believes this is a moment in time to really mend it, create it, and, and do it right. And um, three months from now, though, you know, there will be cities and states that, like, think of every state as a country, right, that get back to normal again. You know, Gavin Newsom, uh, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, called California a nation state. And, and he's right in thinking about that, right? Like, California could be back to work in three months as if it was normal, right? I mean, normal to a degree where everything that we expected was open before is open again. I, uh, um, but, I certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah, three but, months is but in, a long time. But, but in, in that three-month time, we're going to have to operate a little bit differently, right? I mean, if we don't have a clear understanding of what a good therapy is, right? Because there's all these different studies and things and, you know, hopes that the Z pack with this is going to fix it. Like we need these trials to happen and hopefully in three months we'll have that too. Right. So we'll know, Oh, symptoms of coronavirus. Oh, we'll just test you first. Oh, cool. What we've caught you on day two. Like maybe there's a therapy that actually works really great when we've caught you before you've got symptoms. And like, if there's anything true about us as people, as we know how to fight for, the things and kind of the, like the things that we want. And I think there's never been a more clear picture of what success looks like in this fight. And in this case, it is battling this virus and getting back to quote unquote normal again. And I have full, full faith that we will get there. Um, well, that, that is a good, that is yeah. a good positive note to, uh, to leave it on. And, you know, I, I thank you for the insights. This is pretty, you know, informative. I mean, I'm, as you know, you're one of the first interviews for this podcast and I'm trying to do a wide, wide range of stuff. I just had someone from Shanghai, um, a couple of days ago as the first guest and, um, yeah, these, these wide and differing perspectives are really, really informative. So I really appreciate your time, Ryan. Always, Neil. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and got some insight into you know how people are helping right now with the response. And I know that a lot of bad stuff is going on right now, but I am optimistic and encouraged that people like Ryan are volunteering their time to help us get into a better place. And once we get through the worst of it, um, you know, having people like Ryan and others like him who are you know, doing great work. It'll, it'll help us stem a potential second wave of this, which is what I'm, you know, thinking way into the future about. And others are, I'm sure too. Um, if you like distanced, please, uh, follow me on Twitter at subs one S U B E S zero one, or you can leave a review on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. I'm just getting the show started. So any support would be, would be much appreciated on just by, by way of review and by way of giving me feedback. Thank you again.